because they looked around at their lives and they saw some hardship, they saw some difficulty, and they looked around over here at the Bill Gates of their day. And they said, look at that guy. They looked over at, you name it, whoever is rich and powerful and influential and unbelieving. And they said, look at that guy. Look at that gal. Look at my neighbor. Look at that house she's looking, living in. And look at me. God, what is wrong here? God, when are you going to reward the wicked according to their wickedness? And when are you going to reward the righteous? They essentially were sort of accusing him of, of never getting to it. And so, um, actually starting in uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, God gives the answer. He says, they shall be mine, uh, the, the godly people shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then, shall I paraphrase it, then you will know the difference between the righteous and the wicked. It will become apparent between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you, to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Aren't you looking forward to being a fat cow someday? It actually says they're going to go out and jump around and run and skip and play. That's kind of the idea. As a young person, as a young animal runs and skips and plays, they're going to be that happy. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The last time we were together, we looked at this period of time, not a single day. Second Peter chapter 3 says, With the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And this is one of the times, and God doesn't always do this in Scripture, but this is one of the times when he calls a period of time the day of the Lord. And it's referring to that time that we've, we know more as uh, two periods, the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, and the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and all of the things that are in that. God says there is a day coming, and it is going to be a dreadful day. And in your notes, I put just a very brief review of the points from our last sermon because I, I do want you to, to understand that this is actually all one message from God and one message from me. There, we looked at the negative or the, the judgmental part of it on, on the wicked last time. We're going to look at the part on the righteous today. In regard to the wicked, if we go back, we say here's the whole scope of time from Malachi all the way to eternity. And now we're just going to look at this part called the day of the Lord. 
And it begins with the rapture of church-age believers. God saw fit to reveal His Word a piece at a time from Adam all the way to John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. Not one single person of them knew the whole truth. God built on it piece by piece. The proper theological word, if you'd like to stun your friends and relatives, is progressive revelation. God progressively revealed His truth one piece at a time. And that's why Malachi doesn't know anything about this church age that we're living in, and he doesn't know about this event called the rapture. God talked about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at that a little bit more just, just later here in this sermon. Malachi didn't even know when the day of the Lord was coming. He didn't know. He just knew it was coming. It was future to him. And in God's timing, so far, it's been approximately 2,400 years since Malachi penned these words. The time that Malachi spoke about is we're going to start shortly after all Christians who are alive on that day, whenever it is, whether it's in our lifetime or some future generation, when we are taken off the planet, then, shortly after that, this day of the Lord will start. And what God said in Malachi in a summary form is, He said, that day is coming and it is burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And all the day which is coming, the day which is coming will burn them up. It will neither leave them root nor branch. It is a total kind of consumption. What does the day of the Lord include? The seven years of tribulation includes... The, the wrath of God dumped on the earth to punish unbelievers and also to convert Jewish folks who are alive at that time. At the end of the tribulation, there is a battle called the Battle of Armageddon when all of the unbelievers who are still alive at the end of the tribulation come together and say, we are going to fight with the Antichrist and we are going to finally conquer Christ and we are going to rule the world. And of course, God says, no, that's not going to happen. And Jesus wins a decisive victory. And after that, the sheep and goat judgment spoken of in Matthew 24. And the sheep and the goat judgment is simply this. People who are alive at the time of the end of the tribulation are either going to go to hell if they are unbelievers or they are going to go into the thousand-year reign of Christ alive if they have been believers who survived the whole tribulation. During this reign of Christ on earth, God is going to continue His uh, close and careful discernment between the righteous and the wicked. There will be a total repression of sin. There will be immediate judgment of sin. And Satan will be chained in hell the whole time. And so Christ will reign on the earth and the earth will be completely, perfectly ruled in righteousness. It will be unlike anything we've ever seen at the end of that time, Satan is going to be loosed and he is going to gather together all of the unbelievers. Remember, during that thousand years, people will be born. It will start with all believers in Christ. And some of their children will not believe. And some of their grandchildren will not believe. And some of their great-grandchildren will not believe. And what a heartache to live all of those wonderful years and to see your children rise up and follow Satan in one last attempt to conquer the Christ 
And of course, that will not happen. There will be a decisive victory, at which time God will say, that's it, I'm done. There will never be any more sin allowed set free in the world. Just a brief sidebar on why. Why does God go through all of this trouble? The overarching point of Scripture is this. God is in the business of getting glory to himself. And in eternity past, before this world was created, Satan rebelled. Satan was Lucifer, was or not Lucifer, but Satan was an angel of God, and he rebelled and said, I want to sit on the throne. And at that point, Satan went out to try to pervert creation. At that, and there were a third of the angels that went with him. And then when God created the world, Satan came here and tried to cause mankind to sin, and he was successful in that. And so God brought in redemption and salvation and so on. And all of this time, God is in the business of getting glory to himself through allowing Satan to try to prove his case and through leading us to worship God alone. And when we come to this day right here, the final rebellion of unbelievers, that is going to be the end of that great battle of the ages. And forevermore, God will be surrounded by believers and righteous angels, and all of the unrighteous will be in eternal torment in hell. And hell is described as having weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and it's described as a place where the worm doesn't die, as in corruption that goes on and on. And the fire is not quenched, and it's outer darkness. God says, that day is coming. That day is coming. But in Malachi 4, he also says, he also says it's not that day is going to bring in not only great punishment, but it will bring in great blessing. Look with me in Malachi 4 again. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. It will leave them neither root nor branch, but, but to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there, there's a little something you need to try to cement into your mind. It's kind of important. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're never going to participate as a, as a normal human being in the events of the tribulation. Nor will you participate as a normal human being in the thousand-year reign of Christ. You will be reigning with Him, the Scripture tells us. We don't have time to look at that. But, if you should survive physically past the rapture and into the start of the tribulation, then this particular scripture is pointed straight at you. I hope I'm not preaching to any of those people. I hope you're going to be with us in heaven. Because there's a fair chance that if you, end, if you survive physically into the tribulation, there's a real good chance that you will die before coming to faith in Christ or that you will reject Christ. In one of the first judgments that God unleashes, one quarter 
of the world is killed at once. That means you've got a one in, what, a one in four chance of surviving that judgment? That's quite a roll of the dice if you're willing to take it. And then, of course, we know that not everybody in the tribulation is going to accept Christ as their Savior. But the target of this scripture in particular is God's chosen people, the Jews. And what he's telling them is, look, when this terrible day starts, some people will choose to fear God. And to those who fear God, this will become a day of blessing. Now, the point is well taken on us right now that if you would choose to fear God now, this day will be a non-event for you. You will not be there. When I was in second grade, there was a boy in my class who wore a black leather motorcycle jacket. And that's back in the day when everybody who wore black leather motorcycle jackets, jackets were wicked. And this little guy, I mean, I was, I've always been tall for my age. I'm large boned. And, <laughs> but this guy was taller than me in second grade. And he had this baggy leather motorcycle jacket. And he loved to play mercy. You know what that is? That's where you stand toe to toe and you put your hands like this. And you try to bend them back and forth until one guy goes, mercy, mercy, don't break my fingers off. Second grade. And I remember one time I got my courage up. I thought, I'm going to give it a go. That didn't last very long. When I was in college, I had an extremely gifted theology professor who never failed to answer a question, both biblically and decisively. And every so often, some guy in our theology class would think, yeah, I got the question for him today. I'm going to really stump him today. And so he'd ask this question and, our professor would roll his chalk in his hand and go back and forth and breathe fire on him and put him right in his place. He never, nobody ever out-questioned that guy, ever. And he gave good biblical answers. I had a real healthy respect for my theology professor. And I had a real healthy respect for that kid in second grade. And I didn't challenge him. And the question I want to ask you today is, do you have a real healthy respect for God. Listen to the scripture from Matthew. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. I want to ask you today if you fear God. Now again, I want you to understand that Malachi 3 is in this future time frame, but this question of fearing God is, is the critical question that God asks all of us all the time. Do you fear God? Or are you willing to roll the dice and say, nah, I don't know about this rapture thing. I don't know about this tribulation thing. I think I'll just wait and see. Or do you fear God? You want to know? You want to know? Here's a little test for fearing God. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, I know love and fear aren't quite the same thing, but God is, is saying, look, do you consider yourself to be a follower of mine? Keep my commandments. Do you keep God's commandments? What commandment is he talking about? He's talking about this one right here. This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, as he gave us commandment. Do you fear God today? If you fear God, you have believed in Jesus Christ 
as your Savior. If you want to come into the group of people who fear God, the group of people to whom the day of the Lord will be a day of blessing, not a day of cursing, a day of healing, not a day of killing. If you want to be amongst that group, you need to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's the greatest thing in the world. God tells you how terrible the times are that's ahead. And then he says, hey, here's the way you can avoid it. Here is the only way to avoid it. So I want to ask you if you fear the Lord today. In your notes, in your bulletin, this little question is there. Do you fear the Lord? And I want everybody to bow their head right now. I want you to bow your head. I'm going to pray. And I want, you to, I want you to look God in the eye because you have to answer to Him and not to me. I want you to look Him in the eye right now because if you don't look Him in the eye right now, when you look Him in the eye later, it may not be a good thing. Look Him right in the eye and say, God, I fear you. And I'm showing that by believing in your Son, Jesus Christ. I know that He died on the cross for my sins. I know that He is the only way I can escape this torment and punishment that's ahead, both on earth and in hell later. I believe in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. I acknowledge my sin. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I believe in Christ. Heavenly Father, this is the most important question I could ever ask. And it's the most important question you ask. Do we fear you? Father, make that true of everybody here today. May we be able to look into your eyes with anticipation, with excitement, with blessing, because we are fearing you. Father, if there's somebody here that's not fearing you yet, make it so today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you're fearing God, the rest of this message is for you. How He describes the righteous people as those who fear God. And he says, if you fear me, if you fear me, what's going to happen? The Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. I'd like you to look at something that, that God seems to have put in the Scripture it's kind of a contrast. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. In chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about heat. And in chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about heat. Doesn't he? But the one heat burns up and destroys, and the other heat warms and heals. Do you think that's an accident that God put that that way? The holiness of God is that way. It's either going to consume you in punishment... Or, or warm you like an incubator so that you grow up in Christ the rest of the way. He says, the, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow, and so on. During the tribulation, what's going to happen? During this time period back here that we call the tribulation, or the time of Jacob's trouble, all of those terrible punishments are going to be unleashed. Oh, and I just realized, Tim, where's Tim at? I, Tim, I can't thank you enough for working all on this, and I just, I just made a great mistake here, and it's my fault and not yours, so I want everybody to know it's my mistake. 
that 144,000 is not during the millennium. I don't know what I was thinking there. I, we could have made that list shorter and the other list longer. So take your, take your pencil when you're making notes and put that 144,000 missionaries over here in the tribulation and then hear about them from the book of Revelation. Then I saw another angel descending from the east having the seal of the living God. Uh, a seal is something that, that preserves and protects. It sets aside. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not, do not harm the, the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. During the tribulation, God is going to have a group of servants. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses confuse you. The 144,000 are not the specially chosen ones who were good enough to get into heaven. And the rest are going to live on the new earth. That is not a doctrine of God. That's a doctrine of Satan from the Jehovah's Witnesses. The 144,000 are God's missionaries during the tribulation. And in this, God is merciful. Now think about it. All the Christians, boom, taken to heaven. Who's going to preach the gospel? I mean, some of you are Christians, but if we said to you, next week you'll be the only one here, you have to get up here and preach. You'd go, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm not ready for that. But even you who are barely ready to preach, God's going to take every single Christian off the planet. Who's going to preach the truth? God's specially chosen 144,000. And then I looked and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000 having His Father's name written on their foreheads. What are the unbelievers going to have written on their foreheads in the tribulation? 666, the name of Satan, the mark of Satan. But the, these servants of God will have the name of God written on their foreheads. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders and no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. During that tribulation time, God is going to unleash 144,000 missionaries, and if we read the rest of the Scripture, we'd find out 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's no accident that they're all Jewish because God's primary purpose in the tribulation is to get the Jewish people to stop rejecting Christ and turn to Him. And there's going to be a national wholesale revival of the people of Israel. And there will be Gentiles saved because we just read there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue over the whole earth. God's going to send out 144,000 missionaries over the whole earth. What a great thing. So for those who fear God or those who will respect God, He's going to send out missionaries and there will be a great multitude saved from every nation. So we have this 144,000 that God seals and protects and sends out and then the fruit of their ministry, converts, how many? After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. 
When God says it's a number so big it can't be counted, that's really a big number. Of all nations, all tribes, all peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know... So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They shall neither hunger nor thirst. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them and so on. Man. As bad as the tribulation time will be, there will be an innumerable company of people saved during that time. God is still not going to give up on His people. He's not going to give up on other people who are alive at that time. There will be salvation during the tribulation. And then there will also be victory over the wicked. Look at Malachi 4. Verse 3, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this. That's not going to come during the entire tribulation, but it will come at the end of the tribulation and at the end of the millennium. Jesus says, look, here's the end of the story, and you are going to win. The wicked are not going to win There will be salvation during the tribulation. There will be victory over the wicked. And then there will be blessing in the millennium time. And again, there will be several groups of people participating in the millennium. But initially, there will be saved people physically alive in the tribulation who make it into this thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. We will be there ruling and reigning with Him. And it will be a great time of blessing. There will be no physical hardship. There will be no sorrow. There will be a renewed earth. And there will be no danger. Listen to this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. That's the end of the tribulation. And with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Do you know why the deserts are deserts today? This is a trick question. Because God doesn't make it rain there. How is God going to make the land of Israel a place where there's pools, where once there was parched ground? He's just going to make it rain. God is going to give new birth to the earth. Now, this is not when the new earth is created, but a a new, shall we say, as we like to use the phrase, a new lease on life 
Jesus will be ruling in complete righteousness from the throne of David in Jerusalem. He will be physically present in Jerusalem, ruling the earth. And God will be causing the earth to bloom again in, in incredibly new ways. There will be blessing during the millennium time for those who fear God. And then, uh, well, and also, no danger there. No lion shall be there, no ravenous beast, and so on. We have the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then this final rebellion. And then we come to the time that some Bible teachers will refer to as eternity, um, it's entirely possible that time as we know it, day and night, comes to an end, and you'll see that in the Scripture in a minute. What is the description after this? The God is through with this earth? Here's what he says. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. We'll read about that in a minute. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more curse, no night. Perfect personal relationship with God. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Also there was no more sea. As beautiful as Mount Baker is in the morning out my dining room window, it's the result of a sin-cursed environment. And God's going to burn it all up. We'll read about that from Second Peter in a minute. And He's going to make a brand new one. Can you imagine how beautiful it's going to be if God makes a brand new one and there's no taint of sin at all? No thorn, no thistle. Incredible. A new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Also, there's no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We don't have time to look at this in depth, but it would be my understanding that the believers, the, the, the church-age Christians, will be inhabiting the new Jerusalem because we are called the bride of Christ. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them. Why did God write that that way? He says, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. Okay, period. Well, no, then He goes on to say, And He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them. Do you get the idea that God is trying to say, to face. Do you understand that? He's trying to get that across to us. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride. That's us, Christian of the church age. I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone. My daughter just got a giant wedding ring. You know, you look at that, ooh, baby. The whole city of Jerusalem is going to look like that beautiful diamond ring. It's going to shine like that. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. 
Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, approximately 1,500 miles. And you thought Seattle was big when the traffic was bad. A city as big, a square as big as from here to Los Angeles. That's a big city. 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. That makes it a cube of 1,500 miles. Then he measured the wall, 144 cubits. That's the thickness of the wall, and that would be um, 250 feet thick or so, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And he showed me a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. His servants shall, shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It would seem to me that what God does is He just takes all the blinders off and His glory just shows. Boom! The glory that Jesus had on the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory that, 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 that caused Moses' face to shine like a light bulb. God just turns that loose instead of cloaking us from seeing it, and that's the light of day. Malachi 4.2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. You will go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. It's going to be a wonderful time. A wonderful time. But it's only going to be a wonderful time if you are prepared. And So look what he says in verse 4. He's, he, he, he comes to a conclusion of this brief discussion of, of the, the time ahead for the wicked and the righteous. He says, now remember, remember what? Remember the law of Moses. Now we're in the Old Testament time frame. They didn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't have the person of Jesus Christ yet. He says, now listen, you remember the law of Moses. And how did the law of Moses start? It, start? it started out like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. Have no other gods before me. The law of Moses was not about a list of commandments. Oh yes, there was a list. But those were supposed to be the result of one committing themselves to God in pure faith and worship. Remember now the law of Moses. This is the preparation for the day of the Lord. And what does he tell us? Essentially, what he was telling these people in Malachi's day was, be diligent in your righteousness. How do you prepare for what God has ahead? You be diligent in righteousness. 
Remember the law of Moses, which my Moses. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb. That's the that's the place where Moses received the law, with the statutes and the judgments. He says, "Remember that. Do that." How does that translate to us? Turn with me to Second Peter three. Turn in your Bible to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter three, verse ten. Chuck read the verses uh, from eight and nine previously. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The heavens will pass away. Obviously, when Peter writes about the day of the Lord, he's looking at the whole thing in one big piece. He says it will come as a thief in the night, and the end of it will be the the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You want to know why God's going to wipe this planet? He's going to burn it up? Because the works that are in it have been wicked. And he says, I'm just going to start completely over with something righteous. Verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening that great and coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Don't consider that it's a time for you to do whatever you want and fool around. You don't know what a day brings. He says, consider it's salvation that the Lord has been patient, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of him of these things. What is it? What does it mean to be diligent in righteousness for us? It means don't invest in this world, invest in the next one. Now, I'm not against owning a house. I own a house and a very beautiful shed. And, and when it's done at the end of the summer, we're going to have a grand opening party for the shed. But the question I have to ask myself and you have to ask yourself is, am I investing in my house or am I investing in eternity? Now, I know we use the term investing to be talking about a financial investment. And my house is a financial investment. So is yours if you own one. And that's not wrong. But the question is, what is your house about? And what is the investment about? I, I just feel blessed to have a house that we can have a bunch of people up like we did yesterday. Now, yesterday was a family event, but there are other times we have church things. And, and we can have quite a few people kind of milling around in our house. And, 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 and that's a wonderful thing. A house can be an investment for the Lord if you try to make it that. Or it can be just something you hoard and, and, and you don't want people to come in because they'll mess it up and, and, and you, you know, you gotta spend all the perfect and make it this and that. No, it's just, you know, don't mess with my house. 
And your car can be the same way. It can be a tool to take you out to see unbelievers. It can be a tool to bring unbelievers or Christians into church. Or it can be a prized possession which you wash and shine every week and which once in a while somebody says, boy, nice car, and you get a little jolt of pride and you say, that's what it's all about. Are you investing in this world or the next world? Your money can be a a supposed tool for security in your old age, or you can put some of it into God's work as He burdens you, and God can give you security in your old age. Plus, in the next life, there will be people in heaven because your dollars went in the offering. Are you living with this great eternity in view, or are you living for today? I had a deacon in my church in, in Boardman who, he didn't quite say it at the time, but I think he kind of felt maybe the Lord's calling me in the ministry, maybe he's not. Now, he was a, a young middle-aged guy with a couple of kids, he, and he, he sold his house, and he quit his job, and he moved to Portland to go to Bible college. And he just said, you know, if you just can't, if you can't spend a year of your life studying the Bible, there's something wrong with you. He said, it's not, in other words, it's not going to be a waste. Maybe I'll go in the ministry. Maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. I'm going to spend a year studying the Bible. I thought, that's the kind of attitude we've got to have. Are we investing in this life or are we investing in the next life? I wish my kids didn't live so far away. I wish it didn't cost me a couple hundred bucks or more to go visit them every so often. But if that's what it takes for me to invest my kids in God's work, that's okay. What are you investing in? Do you really believe there is a new world coming, a perfect world, in which God will completely reward you for every little sacrifice you've made and you will live with Him forever in eternal bliss? Do you really believe that? Because if you do, you're going to say no to some things now. You're going to give up some things now. And you're going to do some things differently now. Do invest in the next world, not this world. Do be prepared to visit, to meet God face to face. Years ago, I was out visiting. Kind of helps me to see what their life's about. And this was a father of a kid in my youth group. And so I knew he worked at this certain place. I went there. I just, I'm just going to walk in the door and say, hey, is so-and-so here? And just, you know, that's just the way I do. So I walked in the door, and there so-and-so was. He was standing right there. And as I walked in, he went like this. He didn't want me to see the cigarette in his hand. And, and I, you can't imagine how many times that kind of stuff happens to preachers. And I just wanted to say, you know what? You're not going to have to answer to me. Because God sees. And I don't think cigarette smoking is the worst sin in the world. Don't get me wrong here. But he clearly did not want me to see his unrighteousness. Friends, God sees our unrighteousness every day, every hour, every minute, every second. Are you ready to meet Christ face to face? Because there'll be no hiding. There'll be no hiding then. (laughs) And what he tells us in 2 Peter is he says, Look, you're going to be there. Get ready. Aim in that direction. Pack for that trip. 
What will you be hiding behind your back when Jesus shows up? So we need to be diligent in righteousness. The second thing that, that, uh, that God told the people through Malachi was this. Be vigilant in anticipation. Now, you need to understand two or three things you need to understand here, but one in particular. Where are we at? Oh! Do I have another slide coming back there? I don't, do I? Can you put me back, put me back to the chronology, please? Yeah, to the last slide of the chronology. That's good. Go back right there. Whatever that was, I'll take it. In this tribulation time, God is going to warn His people before the point of no return. And He's going to do it with what a person called Elijah. Look at it, Look right here. He says, look, you want to be ready? Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I'm going to send you Elijah before the coming and dreadful day of the Lord. From Matthew 17, we read these words. John did come. This is Jesus talking. John, John the Baptist, did come in the spirit and power of Elijah and turned the hearts of the fathers and children. Excuse me, I'm, I'm reading from a quote by Warren Wiersbe. He, John, did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He turned the hearts of the fathers to the, and children. Like Elijah, John was a courageous man, a, prayer, a man prayer empowered by the Spirit, a man who lived alone in the wilderness, and a servant who turned many people back to the Lord. But he was not Elijah returned to the earth. However, for those who believed on Christ during his earthly ministry, John the Baptist performed the work of Elijah in their lives. He prepared them to meet the Lord. Jesus said in, in Matthew 17, John was not Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so God sent a forerunner to his people to say, hey, look, the Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. Get ready. Is he going to do that before the rapture day for Christians in this age? No. You know why? Because Elijah's already come for us. John the Baptist, and Jesus has come, and there will be no warning before Jesus snatches all of the Christians off the earth. So if you think something's going to happen, and you're going to read in the paper, and you're going to go, oh, now it's time to accept Christ, that day won't happen. What you'll read about in the paper is millions and millions of people vanished. If the paper is even printed the next day. But for the people, the Jewish people who are alive at the beginning of the tribulation, God is going to send Elijah, and Elijah is going to come. And I think if you study the scripture, it's, it's a fairly even bet that it'll actually be Elijah. Re, uh, um, resurrected, if you will, brought back to life. Actually, Elijah never died, did he? Taken off the earth to be with God came back at the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. Elijah never died, so I guess God doesn't even have to resurrect him. Just send him back. Sorry, Elijah, you've got to go back one more time. It's going to be a little tough, and it will be, if you read about some of the things that are going to happen. But he's going to go back and say, Get ready! And that's very merciful of God. 
He doesn't have to do that, but he's going to. Now, here's what I'd like you to understand today, folks. Turn with me. Uh, do I have First Thessalonians 4? Let's find out. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. Go one more. There's Elijah. I was looking for him a minute ago. Go ahead. Right there. Boom. God's not going to warn us any more than he already has. And here's his warning. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you read that scripture very carefully, Jesus comes down. The dead come up, and we come up. Jesus doesn't come to the earth. He comes to the cl- in the clouds, with the clouds of people, and in the clouds of the atmosphere, and boom, we, we're, we're caught up. That's what the word rapture means. He tells us now, that's what's going to happen. Now, let's go on. We, this is right from chapter 4 right to chapter 5 of Thessalonians. Should not be a chapter break there. They should have left that out, because we tend to think it's a whole separate topic, but it's not. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. In other words, unexpected and unannounced. For when men say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, or let us not be uh, foolish in the way that we live as others do but let us watch and be sober for those who sleep sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night but let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as the helmet the hope of salvation for god did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our lord jesus christ God has already warned us in the future, in that tribulation time, He'll send Elijah so that those people aren't caught unawares by the end of that tribulation time. And and, and He'll send that 144,000. And there'll be that great, great revival, a great number of people coming to Christ. But for us today, God has told us how to become His children through faith in Christ. God has told us how to be prepared to meet Jesus. God has told us that the next event on His timetable is the gathering of Christians to heaven in the rapture. God has told us that many people will die under the tribulation time's judgments. God has told us that many people will be deceived by the devil into fighting against Christ in the end of the tribulation and then be killed and sent to hell. God has told us all of that. That is the warning. We don't need some other marker in the news around us. And there won't be one. God has already told us. One of the stories in the news this past week was about a boy who jumped off a rope swing into the river down like Snohomish County or somewhere. And he bonked his head and landed in the hospital. And the firefighters who rescued him cut the rope off as high as they could reach in an effort to keep other boys from the same fate. The reporter said the rope had been cut before and then replaced. 
Probably every time somebody bonks their head, they cut the rope off and then they put another one. And I want to cut the rope off today. I want to say, look, don't, don't fool with this. Don't, don't put God to the test. I want to enunciate God's word. God sent me to wisen you up about the glories ahead for the Christian and the horrors ahead for the unbeliever. And I just want to ask you today, won't you take his warning? Won't you heed his warning? Won't you say, yes, I will fear God. Heavenly Father, work in hearts today. For me personally, Father, I just can't understand why anybody would want to be unprepared when these days come. I can't understand it. And yet I know that sin can be blinding. Oh, Father, open the eyes and help them to see the great truth, the glories that are ahead in you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our hymn book, please, and turn to number 539. If you're not sure that that day will be glory, then you need to make sure. And it would be my joy to sit with you today and open the scriptures and help you to be sure. Or any Christian sitting around you would be glad to just open the Bible and say, this is what it means to believe in Christ. Don't leave today unsure. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the certainty of salvation in Christ. We are so blessed with that. Do your work in hearts today. Help us who do know you to live in the fear of God. Help us to find that path day by day and to say no to sin and yes to righteousness so that we can be ready to see you face to face at any moment. Father, go before us today. Help us to have a great time at the Louisa house. Help us to carry your ministry there and, and throughout the week in any place that you take us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.